Hi, this is David Lawrence. A great honor uh, to be with uh, Jim Mintz, um, the founder and head of the Mintz Group, one of the world's leading investigative research firms. And the topic today is a very important topic, one that's very near and dear to my heart. Um, it involves a common sort of term, which is due diligence or background checks. And what we really want to do is uh, get behind the curtain and understand what takes place in a background check, what is diligence all about, and uh, I'll use the word to decommoditize the process because very often um, things that pass for effective diligence and effective background research um, don't really uh, cut the standard. And it's really a great uh, privilege and honor to be with Jim, who has been truly one of the thought leaders in this space. So first of all, good afternoon, Jim. Great to be here, David. Jim, why don't we start with a little bit of your background, um, which is fascinating, and I'll uh, offer this disclaimer. Uh, I've known Jim now for uh, close to 30 years, and we worked uh, extensively uh, together while I was at Goldman Sachs in, in my current capacity as a founder of Brain. So it's truly a great honor to have had that privilege. But let's start with your career. Yeah, um, I have been an investigator, a private investigator, uh, really all of my adult life. I began as an investigative reporter. I went to journalism school and I liked to dig into things uh, as a reporter. And um, I grew up in Washington, D.C. and went back there after college. And that was uh, post-Watergate, Washington in the 1970s. And everyone was investigating everyone else. Uh, remember, not just that wasn't just Watergate time. Those were the abuses, even to the side of the Watergate break-in, that led to the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act and uh, cash, literally cash, sloshing around politics. And in the wake of Watergate, um, there was a lot of uh, uh, lawsuits being filed and congressional investigations that were really investigative. Um, and um, I ended up working at a law firm as an investigator. Uh, they had an investigative unit in the law firm. And I kind of converted my digging skills from journalism to litigation. And I stayed at that firm for a couple of years. And when I left there in 1979, really from that day to this, um, I've been an investigator uh, working mostly for lawyers. I kind of had an orientation to law firms, and that was kind of the culture I came out of. And your clients now uh, consist not only of some of the leading law firms, but leading uh, corporations and private equity firms, et cetera. So uh, you built a great practice on the basis of your reputation. That's right, and, and, uh, and for our discussion today, uh, Background checking is really at the core of a lot of what we do in different contexts. So, uh, let me, I'm going to go back to a comment you just made about uh, you started your career uh, post-Watergate Washington where everybody was investigating each other and cash was sloshing around, as opposed to current times, I gather, right, Jim? Exactly. We've come so far. far. Okay. So, uh, let's, let's talk about the term background check, which can sound like very pedestrian. Uh, let's interchangeably use the word diligence and due diligence. Let's interchangeably use the word, um, what I'll refer 
referred to as uh, investigative research. And talk to us a little bit about your practice and how you apply your skills and basically what does it mean to put together a background check? Yeah, you used the term, David, uh, decommoditizing this concept of a background check. We like to say that it's helpful to demystify it. And uh, one way to do that is to think about all of the different specific checks that one can do to check the background of a person or a company, really. Uh, and um, we think there's 26 steps that you can take. So just for, uh, uh, for clarity, we gave each of them a letter and speak of them as the checks we can do from A to Z. And um, by breaking them down, by unpacking background checking into these 26 specific steps, we think we can be clearer about what's on offer, what's on the menu that we can then talk about. And it begins to imply that uh, uh, there are a lot of different levels of background checking and a lot of uh, different problems that can be solved with background checking um, from a compliance point of view or a risk abatement point of view or a due diligence point of view. Uh, there's a lot of different ways to cluster these steps from A to Z so that they solve different problems. Let's talk about some of the problems that you've been asked to solve. Yeah, we uh, do this background checking, first of all, all over the world, um, uh, in various, uh, various moments in the life of our uh, corporate clients. Uh, uh, Pre-deal is, uh, is uh, maybe the, the most common, Pre some kind of uh, checking out of some party that our client wants to, uh, uh, to, to buy or go into a joint venture with, et cetera. But there's also uh, not just pre-deal, but pre-hire. Um, we do an awful lot of uh, background checking uh, before somebody is, uh, is put into a, uh, a position at a company or onto a board. We do this for uh, public companies and private companies. So, um, uh, so there's that context. And then, uh, as you know, from the regulatory pressure uh, that's, uh, that's uh, heightened in recent years, um, a, a company uh, uh, forms relationships with vendors and distributors and agents, a number of third parties, and, uh, and needs uh, them to go through some kind of background checking or background screening. Uh, and, and, uh, and a number of other kinds of relationships that corporations form, driven by concern about uh, corruption, terrorism finance, uh, uh, supply chain concerns, et cetera. So the model, um, and again, uh, by way of disclaimer, I've had good fortune working with Jim and his team on a number of different um, transactions in a number of different contexts. The way I've always thought about this, Jim, is um, fortunately the term background check almost has a numbing quality um, when you convey it to people. I like to think of this, and I always have thought about this, as 
informed decision making from a legal, from a regulatory, from an operational, from a, I'll call it, reputational standpoint. What am I about to do? With whom am I about to do it? And what, what do I really need to know to make sure whatever risks I am assuming or structuring around or don't want to deal with, that I am doing this on as fully informed basis as possible. And I think that's basically, if I can be presumptuous, that is the value presumption, that is the value proposition that you have provided. And uh, over the years, there's been an evolution in your business. Um, and I'll use the word at times, um, people not necessarily understanding what it makes, what it means to make a fully informed decision. And so maybe you could um, take a minute or two and talk about the types of information that you bring in and how you do it. And I'll use your word, demystify the process a bit. Because one of the, one of the reasons I've always enjoyed working with Jim is perhaps his journalistic background. And that so much of what you need to know is available through open sources, but not necessarily accessible sources. Yeah. So the ability to know what is out there, what could be out there, and how to peel away the onion is absolutely critical. And my final um, point before I turn this over to Jim <coughs> is the fact that um, when you, whether you look at a company or, a, or an individual, you're looking at a history and you're looking at a footprint. And corporations are legal fictions. They consist of people who have histories. They consist of operational history. Uh, and the ability that you have and some of the efforts that you've undertaken to sort of understand what could be relevant, salient, and what people need to know to make a more fully informed decision, I think has been a criti critical contribution to the marketplace. So maybe you can unpack some of that for, for people. Yeah, let me start with your last point, David. Uh, background checking uh, is predicated on this notion that if you look at the patterns in a person's past, that, in effect, the leopard does not change his spots. So, unlike mutual funds, past performance is potentially predictive. That's right. Of future yeah. returns. Okay. Yeah. Um, we like to engage our clients in a in a kind of dialogue as we're thinking about what kind of background check might best apply to their issues. Uh, and maybe we do that because it's an interesting discussion and it denumbs the, the, uh, the discussion of background checking. The discussion we like to have with clients is what are your concerns and what are you risking when you form this relationship? And then uh, we try to match up the client's risks with our checks. And I mean that with specificity on both sides. Um, uh, if somebody is, if you're considering, you're a board committee, uh, uh, considering uh, a new member of a, let's say a public company board, um, uh, and the following day, the day following the announcement of this new board member, there's likely to be scrutiny in the press and the internet could, could uh, salute you or burst out laughing. Um, uh, that's an environment where um, 
for example, one of our 26 steps is uh, checking the social media uh, that, uh, that a person has, uh, has left behind them, has left as a, as a trail behind them. Um, I would argue that if this is a person who's going to carry your flag, like a board member, uh, that social media is one of the 26 that you, you might want to very seriously consider matching that check to your risk. Uh, but if, if uh, uh, we do you know, a lot of lower level uh, background checking, uh, all the way from you know, truck drivers and receptionists on up, and uh, uh, there's always uh, financial pressure on these things. You can't check everything. Moving on to S, uh, uh, a real property check. We argue to clients sometimes that uh, if the individual uh, we're checking is going to be, uh, uh, have discretion over millions of dollars for you, it, it might behoove you to know, get a kind of a snapshot of whether they're under financial pressure right now. And the best snapshot I can give you of that, not perfect, uh, is uh, uh, do they own their own home? How much do they pay for it? And, uh, uh, and how much is their mortgage? In other words, what is the equity they have in their home? It gives you a, a, quick, a quick look at a person's financial condition. Again, if they're not going to have discretion over millions of dollars, you might not care. Um, but those are examples of uh, matching risks and checks. So um, you spoke earlier um, about we'll call it the drivers in your industry, and you referenced obviously there are people who have very standards of care and different business models, and you know, at least some things that people care about and some that don't. But you referenced specifically some of the regulatory concerns, and so there has been a bit. I know you've witnessed it. Uh, a bit of a um, moment here where because of regulatory enforcement actions and others, uh, there's been an educational process about what can matter and what is needed. And um, there's the model that I want to make a more fully informed decision and I want to know what I need to know. There's also the very important standard of if something goes sideways or wrong regulators have questions, the ability to demonstrate a documentable and defensible standard of care. Maybe you can talk a little bit about how you've approached that as well. Yeah, we have had occasion to, uh, uh, to see uh, regulators come in and, uh, and examine the kinds of background checking uh, that clients do. In fact, sometimes that drives clients to a service like ours because previously they had been using a more, I would say, check-the-box uh, kind of approach. Uh, for example, just checking criminal uh, behavior or uh, just running th someone through one of these watch list uh, services. Um, and we have seen uh, where regulators are, uh, are critical of that. Uh, and uh, and essentially view that kind of very quick uh, robotic checking as as insufficient. Um, uh, the other uh, uh, the other thing that can go wrong is that uh, uh, when you shuffle together 
everyone in the United States, and some of these databases are everyone in the world. Um, the, uh, the kryptonite, if I could say, the kryptonite to Superman here, the thing that really causes smoke to come out of the back of the machine is common names. Uh, there are thousands of Stephen Fosters in the United States. There's a dozen James B, middle initial B, Minces in the United States. That's a lot of James Minces. Um, and uh, what happens with the uh, sort of really check the box, sort of cheapo background checking services, one of the things that goes wrong is that uh, they issue a statement uh, that, uh, that it becomes a sort of time bomb in your file, which is we can't be sure that the Stephen Foster you want to do business with is or isn't the same Stephen Foster who was indicted over here in New Jersey three years ago. Um, I guess I would argue that that's God's way of telling you you're uh, not focusing enough on, on, uh, on due diligence. Um, the fact is, I don't want to tell any client what level of checking they should do, but, um, but I would just argue that that statement unresolved in your file uh, is a time bomb. Um, and, um, and I would argue that your background checking service has done you a disservice by putting that time bomb in your file. So let me, uh, because you basically highlighted a couple things, which is with the increased presence of online records, with technology allowing people to do more and more companies and more people out there offering services. And with this becoming a little more of a commodity, and at times that's fine, uh, there is nonetheless uh, the ability to sort of miss the type of precision that is needed to understand your risks. So this is not a check-the-box practice. There may be check-the-box technology that can be helpful, but there are issues around commonalities of names. There are people who alter their names to avoid the detection of these technologies. So, you know, a, a James Mintz might become Jim Mintz or Jimmy Mintz, and then won't show up in some of these things. And we've uh, encountered that. And just if I can share with the audience a specific example of something um, that I was involved with where we were diligencing um, key management and board members. And Jim, I believe uh, your firm actually had a role in some of this. Uh, but there was a um, fairly high level uh, member of management who had a common name hailed out of uh, Providence, uh, Rhode Island. Again, this was at the time one of the largest Fortune 500 companies. And we were um, going to the markets on a deal. And uh, very common name and came up with a bank fraud conviction and did two years in jail. And, um, you know, common name, et cetera, easy to dismiss. Uh, and after all, why would he be at this company if he in jail for two years. And uh, the, um, the theme that always came across from one of these life lessons was, sure enough, we thought to ask about it, and then he gave it up right away. And it was easy to sort of figure otherwise. And this is a prior undisclosed conviction to his 
company selling to the markets, uh, et cetera. Uh, but it's a very, very critical catch. And so what I would say to people in the audience who are involved in background checks and diligence and have to balance cost benefits, that there's an, there is an art to it, there's a science to it, but it is not a push button type of thing and you have to be very thoughtful. And let we conclude that this is only a problem for John Smith and Stephen Foster, let me use the example of Norman Shu, S-H-U, the, uh, the heavy fundraiser and bundler for the Hillary Clinton campaign when she ran for Senate. The Hillary campaign was deeply embarrassed when their, uh, their, uh, one of their top fundraisers, Norman Shu, was arrested basically right out of the campaign uh, with pictures in the New York Times of uh, Hillary uh, with, uh, with Norman. Um, and the Hillary campaign sheepishly explained that they had, in effect, gotten lost in a forest of Norman shoes and did not, uh, was not able to figure out that uh, he was wanted at the time they were doing this business with him. Or thought to ask. Right. So, great lesson. Jim, let me uh, go back to this process of informed decision-making and maybe educating the client uh, about what you do and how you do it. Um, talk to us a little bit about how this business has evolved in terms of the information that on a daily basis is becoming available and how you and, and your team of analysts uh, begin to on behalf of a client, drink from the fire hose and get to the information that is, in fact, relevant to what they're about to do or what they're about to avoid. Yeah, I've been doing this for uh, uh, this kind of background checking for all of the 35 or 40 years that I've been uh, in this business. And it's obviously uh, uh, changed a great deal during that time. Uh, uh, there was certainly less to check in the old days, uh, so there was no, you know, nexus of, uh, of news clippings to, to walk over. There was no social media. To there was no social media. So the, 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 uh, my success uh, as an investigator depended on things like having a friend at the Washington Post who could open the door for me so that I could get into the clip room, the actual physical scissors, uh, you know, cutting out of, of pieces of paper from that day's newspaper and being stuck in a file with, you know, the subject's name on it, you know, these sort of packets, and you'd walk over to the copy machine and have to copy them. Um, so, uh, so there was less to check, but also standards were a lot lower. So it, it, it was uh, much easier uh, 30 years ago to be able to say, well, how was I supposed to know? Uh, that this fellow was arrested in Singapore uh, some time ago. Um, um, so uh, 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 the goalposts on both sides have, have moved. Uh, uh, the Internet uh, and regulators uh, uh, have no uh, tolerance for, uh, well, my golly, how could you not know that? Um, so, so the standards are extremely high. Um, and... Uh, and this surge in background checking that I would argue we're, we're all experienced right now is not just written, driven by regulators, of course. 
is driven by the flattening out of the world and the fact that now, much more than years ago, people are, are doing things uh, on the other side of the globe uh, and they're expected to, to know their customer, know their partner, know their this, know their that. Um, so, uh, uh, so at the same time that, that uh, uh, the due diligence and background checking is, is booming, uh, the standards have, have also gone up. And just as you think uh, about the drivers behind this process, and you're right, it's not just, you know, regulators um, and such, um, but this does have to do with the reputational capital of companies and people not being embarrassed by the public media, which is often very quick to swoop in when these types of mistakes are made. Shareholder expectations around the stewardship of, of companies, board governance as well. And very often, there's just a lot of money at stake around this. And as I think about Jim's practice and, and just the diligence in general investigative research, what has existed for a long period of time is when companies are acquiring other companies, um, there's a quality of earnings analysis. They bring in the, you know, people with accounting expertise to pour over the books. And why you would do that and not necessarily pour over, pour over the history of the people and the history of the company itself in terms of the past has always been one of the great disconnects in the market, but yet I, 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 I have seen that. And I've seen the assumption that, well, they, they, they've never been tagged by enforcement officials and they've been in business for 30 years and all of that. And what I would you know, just underscore, and these are some of the lessons I've learned from Jim and others, is that if you're waiting for the regulatory uh, enforcement action to give you the warning about someone, uh, you will be perpetually behind the curve. Um, Bernie Madoff being a, being a headline example. Uh, I, I think one thing we should turn to, David, that your, uh, your point uh, illustrates, that people have a, a different view about, say, a quality earn, of earnings analysis by their accountants and, and a background check, is that with a, the accountant's analysis, you're expecting to hear all sorts of subtleties about uh, about what they're finding, and to to hear a kind of a qualitative uh, view of the strengths and weaknesses of the business. And I would make the same point about background checking. So far, we've been talking as if the job of a due diligence background checker is simply to knock out the occasional uh, person who shows up who has been convicted of something and nobody knew it. But really, what a background checker should be delivering is is much uh, uh, is 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 more valuable than that. We call it painting in shades of gray, not just finding that somebody is uh, vanilla and and over here somebody is is uh, cannot you cannot do business with this person because of their past. There's all sorts of gradations in between. It's the gathering of intelligence to feed your gut so that you, you can make a good gut decision. Um, and, uh, and, and, and there's a lot of, uh, uh, of subtlety to that. So, uh, 
Jim speaks in artistic terms about painting in shades of gray. Uh, I think of this as it is really a red light or green light situation. This is about more fully informed decision making and understanding the risks that you're assuming or the ones that you actually have to mitigate or structure. And to, just to tie it into the accounting point is a, uh, one of the smartest uh, individuals uh, in the world around accounting fraud uh, once explained to me, accounting is not a numbers game, it's a personality game. That the people who run a company, their accounting invariably will reflect their character and their backgrounds and their approaches to things. And so when he sees certain people, one of the reasons he enjoyed working with me on a couple of uh, matters and we would talk about the people and what we were seeing, is he, he, if he understood the backgrounds of the people going into a particular company, he also had a better understanding of some of the things he should be looking for. So just, just to tie that together, Jim. Yeah, I'll just give one example um, that comes up a lot for us. You might think that we check civil litigation, uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll tell you that's letter C in my A to Z, that uh, we check civil litigation to see if someone, if our subject has been accused of things or uh, uh, had judgments against them. And of course we do that. But there's another side to it. We also uh, uh, look at cases where our subject was uh, the plaintiff in litigation. And uh, uh, our clients uh, uh, are sometimes quite concerned if they find that, uh, that the person they're thinking of doing business with or putting in their C-suite or on their board has, oh, I don't know, uh, sued their neighbor over the hedges or, and sued their dry cleaner over a, uh, his wife's dress or uh, a variety of other, uh, just being disputatious and using scorched earth tactics in, in disputes. Okay. I'm staying away from Jim's political views uh, right now. Thank you. But uh, in all seriousness, um, what Jim is pointing to again is there would be no regulatory enforcement action. There would not be, not be a criminal conviction. There would be no bar to doing business. But the ability to understand that possibly uh, a CEO whose company has made four or five acquisitions in the last 10 or 12 years and three or four of them have ended up with him as a plaintiff or as a defendant is a relevant fact irrespective of whether the case is settled or not. And sometimes those civil litigations end up right in the bullseye of what you most, what a client would most be concerned with. You're thinking of loaning money to someone and you're checking on that, that uh, potential borrower. Uh, you need to know, I would argue, that they've had disputes with their past few lenders. Or to understand which counsel this particular individual or company go to on a regular basis. So, um, the metaphor of peeling away the onion, the metaphor of, uh, how should I say, um, Warren Buffett once uh, gave the quote that when the tides recede, uh, you find out who's been swimming without a bathing suit. I I've always thought this, this is a process of allowing the tides to recede and see, see basically, you know, sort of what someone or a company is about. Jim, let me also talk to you because um, Jim and I share a uh, admiration of Tom Wolfe um, and the book Bonfire of the Vanities, 
which even to this day, uh, I'm not sure Tom Wolf could write a tale of what's happened in today's society and you know the intersection of um, media and social media and regulatory events and personalities and stuff. But the fact of the matter is that um, I at least have always uh, been watching as risk uh, accelerates a lot quicker these days. Uh, Tom Wolf's basic thesis that even from small and disconnected events and, uh, and relationships, uh, big consequential matters can occur. Uh, people refer to them as sometimes low, low probability, high impact events. Um, but there have been a number of things that have popped up that have been highly relevant, highly salient in the management of legal, financial, reputational risk, regulatory risk that have been sitting in the room for a long time as the, the variable elephant in the room. And I actually wanted to talk to you a little bit about this because um, diligence and uh, looking diligence is not just looking at information it's it's having certain issues in mind as you look at those bits of information or when you see something connecting it to a particular dot but as we watched um, the, the prognosticators and the predictors of what was going to happen in 2017 the smartest people in the room nobody predicted basically the bursting of the issue of sexual harassment in the workplace. And yet, for generations, let's go back even to biblical times, but certainly for generations and certainly in modern times, that was the elephant in the room. We're now watching something else unfold here in terms of some of the most formidable and uh, high growth companies in the technology space. The issues of data privacy and their susceptibility to influence, if not corruption, by external forces, often unwittingly, often uh, without any ability to discern. And I'd like to maybe, you know, get your thoughts about how you think not only about existing risks, but the diligence process about what might yet come and how you can see maybe the trickle of the beginning of an issue and how that might be accelerating into something bigger. Because certainly, Weinstein was not about Weinstein. It became a contagion. Yes. The, uh, the Me Too movement represents an earthquake for background checking. Uh, we are being flooded, and I'm sure other firms like us are being flooded with concern and inquiries and a, and a uh, a demand uh, that we do whatever we can uh, to try to ensure that uh, that the new relationship doesn't bring with it, uh, uh, you know, a risk of an explosion uh, in the in the area of sexual misconduct. It's not new. I wrote an editorial for the Wall Street Journal exactly 20 years ago on how to investigate uh, a claim of sexual harassment. Um, but, uh, but obviously we're in the midst of, a, of, an, of an explosion. And it's a real challenge uh, for our business because don't forget that uh, many of the examples we can all cite really didn't have any uh, paper trail behind them. Uh, there are exceptions. 
the publisher of the Los Angeles Times was suspended uh, recently um, after the uh, the employer found uh, apparently they hadn't known it when they brought him in that he had two sexual harassment lawsuits uh, on his on his record right down there in the courthouse um, from his prior from prior employment. So it's not that there never is a paper trail to be found, but there often is none. And what we counsel in that area is to uh, play heads up all with the checks that we can do. Uh, and there are a variety of, of things that can raise red flags, right? In the basic A to Z type steps, um, uh, not only uh, litigation, of course you have to check the sexual predator uh, database, or there could be, you know, an order of protection in the civil file or the criminal file. Um, but one needs to read uh, uh, a person's social media with this in mind. We've had cases recently where there were kind of red flags, not that somebody would admit sexual misconduct in their own social media, but we find examples where people use, for example, disrespectful terms about women. We had one recently where they used the word bitch in a sort of a joking way that didn't seem very funny. Um, uh, and there are on social media, you know, uh, uh, denunciations and, and lists and so on that circulate that, man, I would argue you need to know them, even if they're unfair and untrue. Uh, you know, your announcement that this uh, person has come on your board would be met on day two with, with uh, derision if you didn't know that at, at the very least. And then, if there are red flags, I mean, just one more example. You know, everyone makes fun of Glassdoor. It's completely anonymous. It's irresponsible in many cases. You know, Glassdoor, the the uh, social media the social media side where people can opine about their employer, about their workplace. But it's actually can be useful as a red flag in this context because if what Glassdoor is saying is there's a you know quote frat boy atmosphere at the company that, let's say, this individual used to run, I would argue that's a red flag. And I don't mean to, to, uh, uh, to say, I don't mean to use red flag as, an, as a euphemism for, you know, stop the trains. I just mean it's time to, to really buckle down and, and, uh, and see what we've got here. And we've had some cases recently where, uh, where our clients wanted us to go further when we have hit red flags. And by going further, what I mean is, actually uh, figuring out who used to work with this individual and asking them uh, whether they had this reputation. Uh, so the concern of clients who are doing uh, high-level hiring and deals uh, right now, 2018, extends more than it's ever has before to doing a little quiet asking around among former colleagues uh, driven by Me Too concerns. And uh, I, don't, I don't want to put a time stamp on our conversation, uh, but just coincidentally, uh, and I won't mention the bank, but a leading uh, revenue uh, creator at one of the top banks uh, just came out that um, he had been involved in the physical abuse of two ex-wives and girlfriends. Apparently this was known by various managers at the bank but otherwise undisclosed. So uh, just to underscore the importance of the point. But we're also, Jim, we're also seeing sort of a confluence of 
other events and I, you know, privacy and data protection concerns. Um, the Parkland shooting in Florida and the unleashing of, through social media largely, of uh, youth protests, which has caused corporations to all of a sudden look at everything from investment holdings to what their companies are buying or selling or which merchants they're providing credit card services to. And this is also part of the diligence process, is understanding the, how small things might become bigger contagions, reputational or regulatory concerns. And maybe you can share with us just sort of how you try to at least try to stay ahead of the curve for your clients. The first thing I would say is that uh, I think the job of a business person today is more investigative than it's ever been before. The job of a lawyer advising clients is more investigative. I think investors uh, need to be good investigators. And the trouble with all this pressure to investigate, the trouble, you know, the, the, the pressure to know more, is that nobody really helps you with how do you do that. Uh, investigating is not taught in law school or business school. Uh, let me, uh, I wanted to point out just one, uh, you're raising the very cutting edge point about the internet and, and, uh, uh, and, and the challenges it poses. More than ever before, looking back over my decades, uh, more than ever before right now, we encounter uh, on the internet uh, people and uh, sites and uh, blogs and so on that just aren't who they say they are. Uh, there's a lot of, of uh, fronting, a lot of uh, astroturf uh, where, um, and a lot of fake this and fake that. So it, it just, it's a, it's a real challenge. So globalization poses a challenge and uh, the internet poses a challenge and regulation poses a challenge. So it's a, it's a great moment for this conversation about background checking. So one thing that, um, and I like to use the term, uh, kids don't try this at home, which is uh, constantly, and Jim and I have shared stories about this, uh, talk to a client, client says, well, I've Googled this and I've seen this and this. And, and it is at that moment that you have to remind the client, number one, that uh, Google is a wonderful search engine, but it is about advertising and it's about optimizing and prioritizing certain things which may or may not be relevant to you. Uh, and two, there is a world beyond um, we'll call it the watch list and the sanctions list and what you, you're seeing on the first two or three pages of, of Google. And Jim's point here, which I want to underscore, is not, it's, it, it is not simply about uh, information that's out there, it's understanding the reliability of that information. And it is also about the actionability of that information. So one of the worst things that can happen to a corporation or to an individual who begins to work on a diligence project or background is that they are given a lot of information and they ultimately throw their hands up and say, what am I supposed to do with this? It's just not actionable. I see a whole bunch of noise. I don't know whether it means anything. Uh, I'm, seeing, I'm seeing 
you know, a lot of the forest, but I, you know, I just don't know what these trees mean. And that is, in large part, uh, where you know, Jim and other firms can be very, very helpful to clients. It's not simply a gatherer of information, but a bit of a sherpa. One thing that happens uh, quite often uh, is that uh, a client has seen something in Google uh, and is considering walking away from a relationship. And on further digging, we find that the cloud really doesn't amount to much. Uh, just one quick example. Uh, uh, everyone is aware that these uh, plaintiffs' law firms file uh, stock drop lawsuits all the time. That is, whenever a stock a price drops uh, to say, well, there's been fraud committed here, and they name every member of the board, and here you're doing due diligence on this business person who happened to sit on a board that, and got sued for fraud. So um, uh, that's the first sort of thing that comes over the ticker, uh, fraud problem with your subject. Uh, on further digging, uh, and we find these every day, uh, we put them through a kind of an analysis. Uh, is there, was, was every member of the board uh, sued? So he was sued, uh, and, and is there ever any mention of our subject uh, in the lawsuit as having done something specific? And when we find that it's, uh, it's kind of pro forma, we make sure to point that out. Uh, another quick example, we uh, uh, often find that press and internet sources, blogs, and even newspapers in various parts of the world uh, hurl accusations that are nonsense. And so the, the, uh, uh, a, a sort of a cheapo background search says, oh my golly, or, or the watch list says, oh my golly, uh, there's this accusation in an Albanian newspaper. Well, I'm here to tell you that uh, the Albanian newspapers are each uh, uh, driven by a political party. Uh, and they hurl those uh, stones at each other or, for political reasons. Or are available to be hired by competitors. Yeah, exactly. So at our best, we are uh, clearing up as many clouds as we are, uh, as we are forming. So let me uh, maybe bring this to a, uh, a close, but with a promise from Jim that we can continue this conversation. But the opportunities to look smart are now greater than ever. The opportunities to look dumb. The opportunities to um, make informed decisions are there but also to be taken to the woodshed, uh, whether by regulators or in the court of public opinion. That um, information to be useful must be actionable and it has to be well-sourced. And one of the things that I have found, uh, and I don't mean this disrespectfully to Jim's research, is that while it's been helpful in helping to make decisions, it's actually, I find it, far, far, far more helpful in raising questions and questions that are subject to further possibly direct diligence through books and records, possibly direct conversations with people about what has happened here and to hear different versions, uh, possibly questions and disclosure that, that have to be made to regulators and questions that have to be documented. If we're going to go forward, let's at least address this. We don't know what actually happened or whether this really is a big concern, but nonetheless, 
there are certain things we can do here that can tighten some of the uh, controls and provide some risk mitigation. The way I would say it, David, is that background checking is an underused business tool, an underused compliance tool, uh, and uh, companies are in the business of forming new relationships. And if you think about how flexible uh, background checking can be, can be made, if you think about making clusters of my A to Z steps uh, that, that match uh, your risks to these specific checks, uh, uh, it's, uh, it, it can be used in, in many ways that, that uh, the people may not have thought about. Jim, thank you uh, for your time today, but I'll also say thank you for your service in building a uh, terrific platform to allow people to make smarter decisions. I learned much of this from you, David, so thank you. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So anyway, thank you all. And uh, I'm going to, again, extract the promise from uh, Jim for part two. And uh, with some possibly um, uh, new innovative uh, announcements to come into the marketplace. So thank you, Jim.